It was said in the early 1900s that the role of journalism was to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I genuinely hope that as you have lived through the events of the last couple weeks, compounding the events of the past handful of months, that there isn't anyone I'm talking to who is comfortable. I don't hope that you feel afflicted, but I think that's the reality of your situation as it's the reality of my situation, that we feel a new level of discomfort, which God can actually do many profitable and wise and gracious things with if we're willing to listen to him and to his word at this time. So that's my hope this morning as we open his word to Isaiah 58 and then Matthew 25. I'm Matt Hand, the pastor of Grace City Church in Denver, Colorado. If you feel like 2020 has been an exceptionally difficult year and we're only five months into it, you are certainly not alone. Michelle Goldberg on the New York Times podcast said 2020 started off like 1974 with a presidential impeachment trial. It quickly became 1918 with a worldwide pandemic, which turned it into 1929 with a significant economic depression And now for the past few weeks, it's been 1968 with massive and widespread urban unrest. This is all piled on top of the fact that our nation was already very much divided and polarized, particularly around politics and ideologies, that for a long time it's been progressives versus traditionalists. It's been capitalists versus socialists. It's been make America great again versus never Trumpers. It's been even nationalism versus globalism. And we are not a nation of good listeners. We love to hear ourselves talk. We do not love dialogue where we listen at length, especially to people who disagree with us or challenge kind of the existing status quo of our deeply held beliefs and even opinions. I've addressed this concern before as we've talked about gospel identity, but I believe with the rise of expressive individualism, we are no longer people with beliefs and convictions and opinions. We are people of beliefs and opinions and convictions. And what I mean is when someone dares to challenge something that we believe to be true or something that we just simply prefer, we don't feel like they're simply attacking something that we think or something that we like. We honestly believe it feels like they're attacking me. And we react as if we are personally being attacked. The very core of our identity and what gives us satisfaction and significance in life is being attacked. I think in many ways our society is like a big pile of dead wood and dry leaves and for a number of years we've just been pouring gasoline on it with a number of these ideological conflicts. I think when our year quickly became 1974 and then 1918 and then 1929 it was like we were starting to play with fire and I would say that 
10, 12 days ago, this horrific execution of George Floyd was kind of the final straw for many, many people. It was like taking a flamethrower to what we've been doing, piling up dead junk in our society. And I think what we've witnessed as a society over the past two weeks or so is not simply a reaction to that event, although it is predominantly a reaction to that event, or it was sparked by that event, certainly. But I think it's, it's really a, a visceral, just catharsis against all of this stuff that's been happening for many years. I think if you're like me, you, you sense a little bit of that drowning feeling where it's like, this is bad and this is not going well and people are not reacting well and you feel like you're struggling to the surface to finally take a breath of fresh air and another wave of something hits you in the mouth and you're swallowing water instead of air. And, uh, and people are hurting. People are hurting. And I think it's important to stop and lament and grieve with those who are genuinely hurting and in despair and in deep discouragement and hopelessness is a very pervasive attitude right now. People want to do something about it, which in some cases letting go of anger and in some cases is creating new anger. So this is where we're at as a society. I want to just pause before we come to Isaiah 58 and just make three quick observations. Number one, I would say there's a common denominator to these four experiences as a society that we're facing right now. And that common denominator is simply, we as a society do not do a good job of taking care of and seeking justice for the vulnerable and the oppressed. You know, I I pulled up these numbers this week, but nationwide, 42% of the deaths due to COVID-19 And that number is almost 49% in the state of Colorado take place amongst one demographic, and that is people in nursing homes and assisted care facilities. So seven-tenths of 1% of the population has seen nearly half the deaths in our nation from COVID-19. Now, there are many explanations for that. Comorbidities, they're obviously older They're already trending toward death. Their bodies are wearing down anyway. But this also points out to me, we did not do a good job of caring for and seeking justice on behalf of people who are already extremely vulnerable in a number of ways. Going to this economic depression, 40 million Americans have filed for unemployment in just the last 10 weeks. And a disproportionate number of that 40 million are in low to middle to low, low paying jobs, many of them living week to week. People with high paying jobs generally unaffected or relatively unaffected by COVID-19 and the resulting economic panic. But 40 million people who many of them already could not afford to step back from a job for a week, two weeks, a month, certainly are the ones disproportionately affected because we don't do a good job of taking care of the vulnerable and the oppressed. And then this last straw, when an officer of the peace knelt on the neck of an unarmed and handcuffed black man for nearly nine minutes, literally asphyxiating away his life. That to me is a graphic illustration. It is a picture of the oppression 
of the vulnerable and the oppressed that our country has tolerated and our church, the church, capital C, has tolerated for far too long. So that's observation one. We as a society do not do a good job of caring for and fighting for justice on behalf of the vulnerable and the oppressed. But a second observation is that we are also a nation kind of given over to false dilemmas. What I mean by false dilemma is that we often take a complex issue and we reduce it, we overly reduce it to an either or. And we say, either you believe this or you believe this. Not cut and dry, black and white. So the fallout of that is this week, I've been told three basic things. Uh, thankfully, mostly privately, but some of it publicly on social media. I've been told, number one, that I support a progressive, violent, anti-God agenda because I stated, get this, Black Lives Matter. Secondly, I've also been told I'm a racist because I said I believe the violent plundering of the property of innocent people is also wrong in God's eyes. Thirdly, I've been told I hate police, that I support the ACAB acronym, and I'm anti-authority because I said I believe in a constitutional right to peaceful protest. And by the way, if you're wondering why people don't often speak up for the truth, maybe it's because when you do, you get labeled with some really ridiculous stereotypes from both sides simultaneously. So let me be clear about this. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, said this. He said, the first and greatest commandment is to love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. He said, the greatest command is actually two commands, love God and love your neighbor, okay? So let me be clear that when I don't do that, I'm in sin. And when you don't do that, you're in sin. And when a police officer doesn't do that, he's in sin. And when a mob does that, they're in sin. If that's still not clear, let me put it like this. What that officer in Minneapolis did to George Floyd was diabolical and it was morally evil. Now, I don't personally know his motive, but I'll say without any qualifications that he committed murder that he committed an act of injustice against one who bears God's image as much as anyone else, okay? Secondly, racism, that is both racial superiority and racial malice is diabolical and morally evil. And thirdly, violent rioting, looting, vandalism, and acts of assault against innocent persons is diabolical and morally evil. I'll go one step further. I'll say that even though on the surface these are three entirely different things, they share one heart. They come out of, Jesus would say, they come out of, they proceed from the same shared heart. And that's a heart of self-importance and simultaneously a heart of hatred toward others who bear God's image. Third observation before we're in Isaiah 58 is in this church, we don't talk about racism because it's a trending topic. We don't talk about racism to endear ourselves to the left or to the right. We constantly talk 
about justice and mercy because these are core gospel issues. Okay, Jesus Christ is deliberately redeeming people, Revelation 5, 9 and Revelation 7, 9 say, from every tribe and language and people and nation. Ephesians 2 says that by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are not only reconciled to God, but you are simultaneously reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ to people from every other race and tongue and nation and ethnicity because God is making one new man. He's making one new body, one new faith in place of the scattering of different races and beliefs. So being anti-racist is, I would say, a core gospel issue. Furthermore, as you'll see in just a moment, God does not separate between our orthodoxy, that is our right belief, and our orthopraxy, that is our right practice. God does not separate those. You'll see in Matthew 25 when we come, come there at the end of this message, that God actually looks at your orthopraxy and he says, if you are not practicing right, it is an indication that your heart has never been transformed. You are not a follower of Jesus. Because if you were, this is not how you'd be acting. A little bit more. Friends, the gospel is not simply how to go to heaven when we die. It was Jesus himself who taught us to pray, Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So until earth, until Denver reflects the racial harmony, the justice, the mercy, the radical kindness and generosity and sharing, the fighting for one another that's reflected in heaven itself, we've got work to do. Now, I'm not talking about posting a trending hashtag or, or for a day putting a little black box to see how woke you are. Okay? And I'm not saying that's why you did that or didn't do that. But I'm not, I'm not worried about how woke you are. I'm just simply talking about the actual day-to-day -day listening and lament and loving and advocacy for people of color and other vulnerable and oppressed groups in our city, in our neighborhoods, in our country that God and the gospel call us to live in harmony with and to seek justice for. Now, I've had enough conversations over the last two weeks and I've been rebuked, not by anybody in our church, thankfully, but I've been rebuked for believing that systemic racism exists, okay? If you don't believe systemic racism exists, that's like a fish saying he doesn't believe the water exists. And what I mean is, it is literally the environment that we are swimming in. Now, you may have grown so accustomed to it that you no longer see it, or maybe you never saw it. But it is literally the culture and the environment that we're all swimming in. Systemic racism is present in housing and banking policies. It is present in the healthcare and education industries. It is present in law enforcement and in our criminal justice system. Okay, we own property in the heart of our city, in an urban community, at the edge of a historically urban or a historically African-American urban neighborhood. 
that is gentrifying. Okay, so when we open our doors and we host community-wide meetings and we see people from every race come, one of our main goals is we get police to come in there too and we get them just to talk and we get them to listen to the concerns, especially of our minority neighbors. And you know what we hear over and over again is there's a systemic racism problem. As we've grown and matured and learned to listen and gotten a little bit better at this and we still have miles to go, but as we've listened to people of color in our own church and made friends in our city with um, even black pastors and congregations and listened to their stories, there isn't one of them who from their perspective will say that the issue doesn't exist. They'll all say it hurts, it grieves them, they lament before God over it, and we have work to do. And we are not ever going to remain silent as a church because Isaiah 58, 1, now we're there, begins, cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins, and if I pause there for a moment and put this in modern terms, God is saying, lift up your voice in protest against the things that I'm about to show you. Now look with me beginning in verse two. God says, God says, yet they, my people, seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and to fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose? A day for a person to humble himself? Is it to bow down his head like a reed and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast? A day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the fast that I choose? To loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? Then you shall your light break forth into dawn and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the spreading of wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water, Whose, words, whose waters do not fail. And your ancient ruin shall be rebuilt and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. This is the word of the Lord. 
Okay, and I don't have a neat little outline for you this morning. It's really this simple, friends. God says, quit your phony garbage worship. Quit your self-righteous entitled prayers. Go take a stand for the oppressed. Day after day, go fight for the vulnerable. Then come back and we can talk. And God says, because if you take care of them, I will take care of you. It's a gospel issue. Turn over with me to the New Testament, Matthew 25. If you think, oh, this is just Old Testament. He was just, he was talking to Israel. He wasn't talking to us. That in the strictest sense is true. He was talking to the people of God under the old covenant. Now in Matthew 25, he's gonna be talking to people of God under the new covenant of his blood and grace and the gospel. And this is what Jesus says in Matthew 25, beginning in verse 31. He says, when the son of man, and that's his, a title for himself. He's basically saying, when I come in my glory and all the angels with me, then I will sit on my glorious throne. And I'll change back to the pronouns in the text. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right, but the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it, to one of the least of these, my brothers or sisters, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and, and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Again, the words of our Lord. Hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, imprisoned. Friends, what are these but categories of vulnerable and oppressed people? And what was the basis of condemnation? Does, does Jesus step back and look at them and say, you were the ones with your boot on the neck of the vulnerable. You were crushing the life out of them, you despicable, cursed people. When Jesus speaks here about this final judgment, he doesn't refer to any overt or active discrimination, racism, prejudice, superiority, or even malice. What does he say? He says the basis of judgment is what you didn't do. Okay, The title of my sermon this morning is Undone. 
Because we, as we often pray in our time of confession, what you do is important to God, but what you leave undone is just as important to God. And if we are leaving undone basic acts of mercy and justice for our fellow man and fellow woman and for children who are vulnerable and oppressed, we cannot stand here and say that our lives have been transformed by Jesus Christ. Now, I don't think that in this text, Jesus is contradicting things said in the rest of scripture. He's not suddenly saying, oh, no, 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 you're not saved by grace through faith. That's not the gospel. You are saved by your good works. That's not what Jesus is saying. But as I said earlier, what, what Jesus is teaching us is you cannot separate your orthodoxy from your orthopraxy. You cannot separate what you think and what you say you believe from your daily action and inaction because God's saying, Jesus is saying in this text, your daily action and inaction is fruit. And it's showing yourself and it's showing the rest of the world and it's showing God what you actually believe and whether or not your heart has actually been transformed by the gospel. And friends, when I put Isaiah 58 together with Matthew 25, I hear God saying, if something sacred is being defiled, silence is sin and protest is mandatory. I'm not saying that you have to protest the way that others are protesting. I'm saying you have to cry aloud. You have to protest. You have to raise your voice and speak for those who are incapable of speaking for themselves or who are trying to speak for themselves and are refusing to be heard. So when we say here in a few minutes, Lord, we have sinned against you in thought, word, and deed by the things we have done and by the things we have left undone, what we're saying is, God, we admit there are sins of commission, things we did wrong, and there are sins of omission, things we ought to have done that we didn't do, and God, we repent and we ask your forgiveness for both. Here's my simple big idea this morning that I'm gonna draw out of especially Matthew 25. Here it is. If you do it for the Messiah, if you knew that was the Messiah standing in front of you or sitting on the corner, if you do it for the Messiah, do it for whoever you regard to be the least empowered of his image bearers. Do you see how strongly Jesus unites with those who call his name. He says, if you didn't do it for them, you didn't do it for me. Why? Because they bear my image, black or white. They bear my image, rich or poor. They bear my image, liberal or conservative. They bear my image, man or woman or completely confused. They bear my image. You do it for them as if you're doing it for me. How do we do this, friends? If you wanted to do justice and mercy like this, how would you do it? And I, I read back through Matthew 25 and I'm like, do I know anybody who lived that kind of life? And the answer honestly is I know one person who's lived perfectly that way. And it's Jesus of Nazareth. I mean, when he kicks off his ministry 
in the synagogue of Nazareth in Luke chapter four, this is the first thing he reads. He takes the Isaiah scroll, he turns in there to this text and he reads it out loud. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So Jesus lived the life that you and I are commanded to live and fail to live. And that can only mean a couple things. Either you can strive, strive, strive in your own flesh, in your own strength to mimic him and to model your life after his and fall short. Or you can repent of your failure as I repent of my many failures to live like Christ. I have fallen short of his glory. I have not loved him with all my heart. I have not loved my neighbor as myself. So we repent and we say, Lord Jesus, by the, the honor and the treasure of your blood shed on the cross, wash away that sin and give us new hearts. Give us transformed hearts that love and that stand up for and fight for the vulnerable and the oppressed. So let me add to our big idea and wrap up. I'll say it this way now. If the Messiah has already done this for you and you would do it for the Messiah, then do it for the least empowered of his image bearers. Let me say in closing, friends, I don't care if you are woke or not. I care that there is a spiritual awakening in your soul that, that shakes you, that deprives you of sleep and comfort for a while because we have brothers and sisters who have been deprived of good sleep and of comfort for virtually their entire lives. And the moment they start maybe getting over the cycle, the cycle perpetrates itself or perpetuates itself. It goes over and over again and they're right back where they were, okay? So I'm not advising you, and in fact, I'd advise you against following the script of the left or the right. Friends, follow the script of Jesus Christ. Follow the script of the gospel that says justice and mercy matter to God, and this is how Jesus himself lived his earthly ministry. And by the way, friends, justice and mercy don't happen in the abstract. You don't just do justice and mercy. Romans 15 verse one says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the weak and not just please ourselves. And you could quickly turn there and be like, well, Matt, I mean, he's talking about, you know, this issue and okay, I get it. Like I've preached on Romans 15 multiple times, okay? But do we not have a tendency to sometimes over-spiritualize certain parts of scripture to get ourselves off the hook for doing something tomorrow in the real world? And again, we've just turned the gospel into this message of like, yay, we get to go to heaven when we die and we're doing nothing for our neighbor today and tomorrow and this week and this month and this year. And that, friends, is wrong. And so the other piece of this, if you see that you have sinned as I have sinned by what we've left undone, there's another way that when we are undone by that recognition, 
when we are unraveled by that recognition that we are living more like the people in Isaiah 58 that God condemns and says, shut up your worship, stop praying your hypocritical entitled prayers, go do this, then come back and let's talk. And we're more like the cursed sometimes in Matthew 25 than the blessed. And if you are undone by that realization, then fall at the feet of Jesus and plead for his mercy and then go do mercy, not in the abstract, but for someone. And I think this is a real danger that, that when people get woke and they're like, oh yeah, justice and mercy, is they talk and talk and talk about all the justice and mercy they're going to do. Friends, you're, you're, there's, there's one Messiah per universe and you're not him. When Jesus walked this earth, he could not help everyone in the same way, being physically present everywhere at one time. He helped the people in his path. He helped his neighbors. So I am pleading with you, put a face to this. Lament, not just for, but lament with someone. Grieve with them. Listen to them. Learn from them. Seek justice for them. Advocate for them. Do something for someone. Micah 6.8, what does the Lord require of us but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with our God. God help us.